Hello and welcome to CAA Conversations. I'm Emily Newmeyer. I'll be serving as your host for today, and I'm joined by Islam Yildiz and Nicole Emzer Marcel to discuss podcasting in the classroom. Yeah, you heard that right. This is an episode of the CAA Conversations podcast that is about podcasting. We will be reflecting on the challenges and benefits of taking on a research project in the classroom whose final product is geared for a more general audience, the wider public. Along the way, we will also be offering some more practical advice and insights for listeners who are interested in utilizing podcasting in their own pedagogy. Now to say a few words of introduction, I teach art history as an assistant professor at Temple University in Philadelphia. And both Islam and Nikki are PhD students in our graduate program in art history. Islam, Nikki, thank you for joining me today for this conversation. Thank you for having us. So I've been working with both of you to develop a podcast series titled Monument Biography, which is set to be launched this fall. Now the seeds for this project began in one of my uh, graduate seminars exploring the concept of monuments, especially in the field of architectural history and in contemporary debates about cultural heritage. Because this seminar was taught online during the pandemic, I realized pretty soon in that writing a long 20 page research paper, which as we all know is the standard outcome for these kinds of graduate seminars, uh, would be difficult for students under lockdown. And I have some experience producing podcasts myself. And for a long time, I've wanted to bring podcasting into the classroom. And I thought, okay, here was the perfect opportunity to experiment and try it out. So this was a semester long research project for the graduate seminar. And each participant selected a monument that was interesting or meaningful to them in some way and created a 30 minute episode exploring the multiple facets and stakeholders of their particular case study. Some of our topics include local monuments here in Philadelphia, like the Painted Bride Art Center and the Beth Shalom Synagogue by Frank Lloyd Wright, as well as other projects in other parts of the US, like the War Memorials at Gettysburg National Park. And uh, Islam and Nikki, both of you looked even further beyond to other parts of the world in Istanbul and Amsterdam, which I uh, will we'll talk about in just a second. And because both of you were participants in the seminar, I'm very happy that you're here with me today for this conversation because you have your own unique perspective on this topic. It's one thing for me as an instructor to talk about podcasting in the classroom, but you and the other participants were the ones to undertake this project in practice and with an impressive level of care and dedication, I might add. So I'm, I'm really looking forward uh, to your insights. Now to get us started and give everyone a more concrete idea of how a project like this could be designed, uh, could you tell us a little bit more about your own podcast episode and how it fits into the wider theme of the podcast series? So my episode is uh, about Galata Tower in Istanbul in Turkey. I was actually still in Istanbul uh, in my hometown during the course uh, because it was in fall 2020 and during the pandemic, I couldn't move to the United States yet. So I decided to look at a monument in the city I was currently in. Actually, the class was called Biography of a Monument, Hagia Sophia. And my monument was 
also a little related to the Hagia Sophia's recent um, developments, how it turned from a museum into a mosque again. Um, my monument, the tower, it was from the 14th century and it had been, it has been used as various things. Uh, I'll read it history as a fire tower, fortification tower, prison, and currently it was kind of a tourist spot and in 2020 it was turned into a museum. So while Hagia Sophia was turned into from, from a museum to a mosque, uh, the monument I was looking at uh, was turning into a museum. And I wanted to see what this change says about the cultural heritage in Turkey. And to do this, I talked to three guests, a Dr. Mehmet Kental, a historian of late Ottoman Istanbul, 19th century Istanbul, a scholar and urbanist, Yeshar Adanalı, who works on spatial justice, and also the director of the new museum, who, uh, the Galata Tower Museum, who was also involved in the making of the museum. And we talked about various aspects of making this museum and the decision-making and the collection that went into the mu new museum and how was the selection made and what went wrong and what went right. And there were conflicting uh, ideas about that among my guests, which was, I think, great. So yeah, that was my podcast. Thanks. And uh, just as a follow-up, were you interviewing uh, these uh, guests in person or were you doing it via Zoom or phone? Two of my guests I interviewed via Zoom and one of them, the director of the museum, I actually went to the Gota Tower to see the museum and we did the interview in person. What about you, Nikki? So my podcast played a little abstractly with what we were given to work on. I looked at two different sites of projection in and on monuments. So the first one I looked at was by Tony Ausler in a church museum hybrid, much like Ozan was talking about. It started off as a church and then became a museum, but still functions as a church. And that was in Amsterdam in 2014. And the other one I looked at was more recent and closer to home. I looked at Dustin Klein and Alex Kriege's projections on the Robert E. Lee Memorial in Richmond, which is an ongoing work. And I was really interested in questioning how artists use these kinds of projection sites to intervene, change, or mediate the existing monuments, and then how these interventions affect long-term change. So that was really exciting to be able to look at two different cases. Originally, I was only going to look at the Ausler case. And then Emily suggested I look at something a little bit closer to home as a contrast. So that was really exciting to see an ongoing work and how things are changing through these projections. So I wasn't able to interview Tony Ausler. But I did interview the director of the museum in Amsterdam via Zoom. And I also had a chance to interview both Dustin and Alex also via Zoom. So I was able to talk to them and I've continued speaking with them about their work, what they've been up to going back and forth. So that's been very exciting coming out of this podcast that I have stayed in touch with them.
I think that's been one of the interesting benefits that's come out of this is how podcasting can generate other types of research, like beyond the particular medium or project. We were talking about the final end product, but now that we're we're looking back after the seminar has concluded, do you recall some of the the challenges you faced in in producing your episode? Definitely. I think there was a bit of a learning curve in figuring out the podcasting software. We had sessions in class, which was extremely beneficial to learning how to use different programs. We used, most people I think ended up using Audacity, but I used Adobe Edition just because I had it on my computer and I liked the feeling of it a bit more. And that's something I learned as well, that I started off using Audacity and I didn't necessarily like all of the editing functions and how it worked. So I switched over to using a different program that was a better fit for me personally. But just figuring out how long and how to edit was the real learning curve. And then once I had edited the first interview, it went much smoother and faster. I definitely agree with the learning curve. (laughs) Seemed a little scary at first because I've never done anything like that. I don't think Nikki ever did either. No. Um, but yeah, after the after the workshops we had during class, it seemed much easier. Even even before I tried anything, uh, it seemed e- a little easier and manageable. And then, yeah, after the after like learning the basics, I think it was fine. But also there were other challenges other than like technical issues. My first issue was to we need we needed to find people to interview obviously and that was the first thing to do and you come up with these ideas and then send email to emails to people and then they might not get back to you I wanted to do an interview with a newspaper people from a newspaper who write on urban issues as well and I didn't really get quick answers, quick replies from them. And then sometimes like people get back to you, but it takes a very long time to schedule an interview because everyone's so busy. That was a little stressful at the beginning because you keep thinking that you won't find anyone (laughs) in time uh, to talk to, but it all turned out fine in the end. Yeah, I mean, mean, you're both bringing up really interesting points. I, I think that something that I observed and we all kind of learned along the way is that podcasting is something that it's it's really useful to give tutorials and to read up on these different skills, but it's really something that you learn in practice, right? Like you have to, you just, as, as you said, Nikki, I mean, you know, it's really just a matter of just sitting down and just kind of getting through it and learning these little tricks, skills, and techniques uh, in in the idiosyncrasies of these kinds of, you know, editing software. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't appreciate. They sort of, when they hear podcasting, they concentrate on the interview aspect of it. And of course, that's an important aspect, but there's a lot of work that goes on the back end, this invisible work that I think people don't really 
appreciate or, or maybe just don't anticipate, but it's, it's so important to really think about how to take the interview and take all those interviews, take all that information and then really shape it into a narrative, into a broader story. Yeah, definitely. And making it, doing the interview was also a challenge for me because <laughs> I've never actually did like a live inter like it wasn't live, but recorded interview before. So I had to like prepare really like clear questions and send send them to my guests so that like they they could they would expect what to talk about. And then I ended up talking to people for an hour. The, the total recordings I had was two and a half hours. And we needed to, we needed to make something between 20 to 30 minutes. So mm -hmm. that was that editing. And I thought every Everything they said was wonderful. I really wanted to like include everything that they said. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversations. So it was really difficult to edit them down to 20 to 30 minutes. That's why I, I ended up having like 30 minutes, like the longest that I can. But yeah, that was a, that was a challenge too. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that it's almost kind of the opposite experience, perhaps, of writing a research paper where I think, you know, you're just, let's face it, you're trying to get that page limit, you're trying to get that word count, and you're just trying to sort of generate writing on the page. And then, I, I mean, with podcasting, usually you have way too much audio and you're trying to just sort of cut it down to something that's manageable. And it's, it's really tough. And it, the art, the real art of it is that editing that comes at the end, shaping the interviews, cutting them down, deciding which parts you need, which parts you don't. It's that kind of cutting room floor aspect of it that I think is, is a really interesting aspect of that's unique maybe to this particular kind of project. Would you agree with that? I would. I had enough material for two or three podcasts. Mm -hmm. I had the same issue that Ozum had. My interviews were incredible and they were also really long. And I didn't plan on them being that long. In my head, I had planned for talking to people for maybe 20 minutes max because I knew how long I had for the overall podcast. And I found once you start talking and conversing and asking questions, people give you these really long, amazing, detailed answers, and it leads to something else. So I had scripted questions, but I ended up asking completely different questions based on what I was being told. Mm -hmm. And that's why my interviews ended up being so long, but they were very fruitful. And it was very challenging to decide what to cut and what to leave because I thought all of it was so amazing. Hmm. And that, that just sort of ties back to what we were talking about earlier that, um, you know, you don't necessarily have to throw all that research, all that material out, right? Like you can take it and use it for a conference paper or for another kind of publication or, or an article or something like that. So I think we, I think we all kind of know from, from doing research that you always end up writing about just a very small sliver of, of all that research you did. You don't always have to just throw that in the bin, right? You can always sort of find new, find new uses for it. That was also, you said it's the opposite of like writing a paper because you're trying to shorten the sound, but also in a way, and I agree with that, but also in a way it uh, was similar to that in that like you hear so much 
and you read so much writing a paper, but like there are things that you can use there, I think that you can't use in this specific paper or in this specific episode. And I thought the um, editing was a little bit similar to like organizing mm -hmm. a research paper because uh, these three interviews were done separately and they didn't know what each other said, but sometimes they, they talked about the same points uh, they agreed with each other or they conflicted with each other. So you see those common points to bring together. So, so you come up with these themes for your episodes. Like this can be the second act of my episode. Uh, like this theme of spatial justice can be the second act. And then because they all talked about the same thing. So that kind of organization uh, was uh, a lot of work, but also similar to writing a paper. And it was, I think it was the fun, interesting part of it mostly. Yeah, and I mean, I and I should probably just uh, underline here that, of course, there are many and acknowledge that there are, of course, many different kinds of podcasts that you can do. So, I mean, there's these kinds of table interview podcasts like Fresh Air, uh, which is what we're doing right now. For our project, we took on a more kind of, how would you say, act-based style of organization where you do a bunch of interviews and you bring them all together into different acts. Um, you know, it's very similar to how, like, say, This American Life is, is organized for people who know that, that program. And I think taking that particular style up was from the perspective of the instructor. I thought that was really useful for you. And just to sort of just echo what you were saying, Islam, that I really saw that something that was really important to discuss as I, we were producing these, uh, this podcast series is like when you're trying to bring together all these disparate elements, it's really important to understand the power of narrative and to find a through line through all of this material and it, essentially to create a thesis statement and that you need to shape it and, and find something with a really strong storyline with it. We talked about that a lot in our conversations of, you know, how to sort of find the hook that would sort of pull people in and then how to kind of lead them along and then wrap it up at the end. It's that kind of storytelling that I think is also potentially a beneficial skill that is similar in, in all kinds of different research projects, like, uh, like an article. So do you feel like that you learned any other different skills or techniques that you wouldn't have otherwise? besides the obvious uh, audio editing aspect of it? I think I definitely did. Um, just finding a new method of communication because the way that you convey information for a general audience in a podcast is very different than I'm used to writing for a scholarly paper. So trying to take this information that I have and turn it into something that is easily accessible to everyone who's coming in with completely different backgrounds is definitely a great skill that I will utilize going forward. I also just learned a lot about podcasts in general and that they can be used in different ways than kind of having on in the background when you're cleaning or doing an activity that they can be very informative and exciting and they can be used in the classroom as well as outside the classroom. And I thought that was very interesting using them in a kind of classroom setting. Absolutely. And I have to say from my own experience that we're, we're talking about 
actually developing podcasts in the classroom. But I have to say, especially with the pandemic this last year, that I've also started to incorporate assigning podcasts as reading in my courses for students, because I think just this day and age, you know, especially with the pandemic, that attention spans are short. And, and as you just, as you just said, Nikki, that I'm finding that it's a really, really good uh, alternative way for students to access information. And it, it really sticks. I think sometimes people disparage that aspect of podcasting, like, oh, you're just doing dishes. This is something you listen to while doing dishes. But, you know, I think there's actually something to be said for it. Um, because you can you can sort of get a lot of information from from this particular format. So, and, and I have to say that uh, just to touch back on uh, what Uslan, what you were saying before, I appreciated it as the instructor. I I realized that uh, this is also a way to learn skills for field work. You had to identify your primary sources. In your case, your guests, uh, who you wanted to interview. You had to reach out to said guests and you had to develop um, interview skills and learn how to ask the right questions. And I think this is all these skills are immediately transferable to doing field work for academic research. When you have your topic, when you have your dissertation topic, when you have your master's thesis topic, you know, you have to go out into the world somewhere. It's not just going to a library and just sitting with with a bunch of secondary literature, you do, generally speaking, have to go out and find, uh, quote unquote, like original sources and go out and do work out in the world somewhere. So I think these are a lot of these are very transferable skills that a lot of people don't learn until they're at that kind of later stage when they actually have to go out and do that kind of groundwork. I will never forget that you told us towards the beginning of when we were working on these podcasts that not to be afraid to contact people. Yes. <laughs> and it's important because we all freeze up a little bit when we have to email or call or otherwise contact somebody that we want to interview. And it can be a little terrifying at first, but just doing it. And I found that that's really been helpful going forward. I have felt much more comfortable just contacting people and asking them if they were willing to talk to me about something I'm working on, because people are generally really, really receptive to speaking with you. Yeah, I remember Emily saying like, the worst thing that can happen that you'll say no, <laughs> but that, no one actually said no to me. I reached out to more than three people and some of them I couldn't talk because we couldn't schedule something, but everyone was very interested in what we are actually doing. So that was that gave me a lot of confidence too. You're so right. I mean, I think, you know, no matter what age or what stage you're at in this process in academia, I think it is so hard to put yourself out there. And just the idea of it can be just terrifying. And I, a hundred percent, I, even now, you know, but I think I, but you know, even, even me sometimes, you know, I have a PhD, I, I teach at university, and it's still, it's still difficult to send out cold emails sometimes. But, but yeah, I think doing this and just learning how to put yourself out there and just to realize that there's not much to be afraid of, really, because people are so nice, generally. <laughs> and exactly. The worst, the worst thing is that you, you never hear from them or they say no, and that's it. And that's all. 
that's all. So I think that is such an important point. And it's a really important skill as uh, to learn to just kind of say, you know what, let's just try it. Let's, what's worse is going <laughs> to happen, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I could not agree more. Also, just, just for people who, who want to implement a project like this for their own class, do y'all have any practical advice for, for educators? Uh, certain uh, guides or are sources that you found particularly useful uh, when you were picking up all of your audio editing or interview skills? I think the ink class workshops that you did were really useful um, because then you have something to start with. You don't just like sit at your computer and say to yourself, okay, now I have to figure this out on my own. And you can do that, but it's, it's, it's very scary. But when you see someone doing like a little sound editing <laughs> live, live on Zoom, I, I remember thinking, oh, this is okay. This is not that scary. Uh, I thought it would be more difficult, but it seems like manageable. And you also mentioned like there's a lot online that we can use to learn when we encounter a problem during editing and we can figure something out. It was actually quite easy to find answers to my questions, to see like what went wrong, what, what was the problem here? Why can't I combine these two sounds? very technical there's a lot online and it is good to have like a workshop where the whole class can experiment together that helps a lot um, and i should just mention here that the program we're using nikki already mentioned it is audacity which is a open source freeware program that's available online for for anyone and as as Islam was mentioning it's it's a very popular program and it is so easy to find information about. All you have to do is, is search online, how do I do X, Y, Z in Audacity? And it will just generate you know, all these YouTube videos and forums giving you the exact answer to your question. So it's a pretty easy uh, program to use for both instructors and for students. And I'll also just note that for those who want to learn how to use Audacity, you can easily do so just by watching, frankly, a bunch of videos on YouTube. That's uh, how I got started. There's also local classes. So I want to give a shout out to PhillyCam, which is essentially the public access network uh, in Philadelphia. And they have classes that are only two or three hour long workshops on introduction to Audacity, things like that. You know, look into your local public media open access programming in your area and see uh, if there's any of these kinds of uh, workshops that are available. So that's another, another way to go about it. Also, maybe we could talk a little bit about how we broke the project down into different phases throughout the semester. We already mentioned uh, we had some workshops and things like that, but it wasn't just sort of turn in the final episode at the end of the semester. The fancy word in, 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 in the business, in the pedagogy business is scaffolding. So we were scaffolded this project. So could you, could you all talk a little bit more about that process? <laughs> I remember the first step that we did was really coming up with a topic and yeah. just kind of breaking it down just very, very easily into what our topic was, what we thought we were going to do with it. And then we 
kind of got in deeper and we talked about it in class as well. Several times throughout the semester, we would meet and talk about what we were doing and receive feedback from our classmates about what they thought we could kind of add to this to enhance what our project was, which I thought was really beneficial to hear other people say, oh, wait a minute, I don't understand what this is, you need to add this, or you don't really need this, you can take that away. And then we started thinking about, oh, we have to interview people, who on earth are we going to interview? And that is when things really started taking shape. I think you bring up a really important point, which is that for these kinds of projects, I find that especially ones that have a more sort of technical aspect to it, a learning curve, as you said, the participants in a seminar like this can, for these kinds of projects can teach each other just as much as the instructor can, because you become the experts um, in this and it becomes kind of a team effort. And I I think that worked particularly well um, in this, in this case. Yeah. I remember um, someone in class saying, like, I talked about birds (laughs) who had nests on the tower. Um, and I talked about it really shortly and I remember like someone saying I want I want to hear more about that like cute story of like birds having nests on the tower and then like need the uh, restoration stopped for a while to like let them migrate you actually hear people reacting to the story you're trying to build and what parts are more interesting and what parts are not that interesting (laughs) Um, because in the end you're trying to uh, since it's a podcast, you're trying to make something fun too, so that so that people will listen to you for 20 to 30 minutes, not like <laughs> not just like have it in the background. So yeah, that that was really helpful too, like to see reactions early on. And it, we started really early in the semester to talk, think about our topics. I don't know which week was it, but like we had to pitch topics very early, and then every few weeks we checked in. We talked about where we were, even if it's not like, if it wasn't a formal presentation, we spent some like 10 minutes, half an hour um, to talk about where we are in the episode. We had that kind of communication throughout the semester. So when we decided who to interview, then we had enough time to do that and then edit because of that early like preparation in the early weeks. I found it was really well integrated into the course. So a lot of times when you're writing a research paper, you really don't start thinking about it until the middle or closer to the end of the semester. It's just the reality of how things are. But in this class, we were thinking about the podcast from the very beginning. I think it might've been even the second or third week that we actually started presenting our topics, what we were thinking about doing. And nobody was held to that topic in particular, but it forced us to really start thinking about it. And as Ozone was saying, throughout the semester, we had all of these check-ins and workshops. So it was part of the class. And it wasn't just a project that you did outside of class. It became something that was integrated into the course. And that was really helpful especially when you're learning something that is a new skill. And I think it was a new skill for all of us. Absolutely. And it's something I think is, is useful to, to take away for all kinds of research projects. So, you know, that I like to say it's, 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 we called it a pitch, but you know, for these kinds of, it's a proposal. It's not a contract that these things do take time and they often look very different 
from the place that you started. So I should mention that Monument Biography, the podcast, will be available this fall on Stella, the online exhibition platform for the Tyler School of Art and Architecture at Temple University. And we will be sure to include the relevant links in the episode notes. That just leaves me to thank you again, Islam and Nikki, for joining me today. And thank you all out there for tuning in for another episode of CAA Conversations.